Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. This episode is a part of the TrueNorth.fm podcast network. This episode is dedicated to the great North African theologian and bishop, Augustine, who lived in the late 300s and into the early 400s. He himself is a great seminal mind on so many subjects, but certainly education. His great work, The City of God, for example. His great work, The Confessions. His great work on Christian teaching should all be studied deeply by classical educators as we seek to renew it and deploy classical education in the 21st century. This presentation I've titled, Remembering Augustine as Historian, Philosopher, and Teacher. Robert Wilkin, the emeritus professor at the University of Virginia, in his essay, Memory and the Christian Intellectual Life, recalls what Matthew Arnold says about the benefit of communing with the ancients. Quote, Commerce with the ancients appears to me to produce in those who constantly practice it a steadying and composing effect on their judgment, not of literary works only, but of men and events in general. Close quote. We might paraphrase Arnold to say that commerce with the ancients leads to prudence. Without the study of history, there can be no prudence. That is, no ability to discern the times and to know what to do in the various circumstances that confront us. Now, Augustine himself is an auctor, the Latin for author or authority. One of the ancients that Wilson, that Wilkin calls Someone who is worthy of trust, a guarantor, who attests to the truth of a statement, one who teaches or advises. Close quote. Augustine is often cited by Wilkin in his collections of essays called Remembering the Christian Path. And I would like to consult Augustine myself, even as Wilkin in Remembering the Christian Past consults Augustine. Why should we want to remember the Christian past? Why should we want to remember Augustine? Why do we need to do this? Well, for a group of classical Christian educators, the answer should be plain. We wish to restore, to renew and extend the tradition of Christian teaching by means of the liberal arts, the fine arts, the common arts, and the natural sciences. The fact that classical education is a tradition means that we must know its history if we're to offer it today. The fact that this tradition of education greatly diminished after about 1930 with the ascendancy of progressive education means that most of us did not receive much of a classical education ourselves, and so the only way we can know what it is is to study what it once was. And this means reading and studying history. There's another reason for Christian educators to study the Christian past, however, and it is this. The Christian past is often not studied, not understood, and it's often maligned even by Christian professors who have been formed by secular university programs to despise the backwardness, oppression, and violence of a Christian past that is generally a white patriarchy. Many think this. While atrocities have been committed in the name of Christ at times, the, the large catalog of great gifts to humanity provided by the Christian church is regularly overlooked. We murder to dissect. Tradition to most today seems something from the past that perhaps is of sentimental interest to some, but of little relevance today to what really matters. Tradition is also viewed sometimes as opposed to what is new and therefore superior. Generally speaking, tradition is not commonly understood as authoritative. Some think that we are obliged to seek, find, and follow the endlessly new and thus to be progressive without generally asking to what destination we are seeking to progress. Some think democracy as it reflects the will of the people from decade to decade, will always march forward, employing policies that are new and better than past decades. Well, G.K. Chesterton encountered this thinking over a century ago, and he writes this 
about tradition and democracy. Quote, But there is one thing that I have never from my youth been able to understand. I have never been able to understand where people got the idea that democracy was in some way opposed to tradition. It is obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. It is trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than some isolated or arbitrary record. The man who quotes some German historian against the tradition of the Catholic Church, for instance, is strictly appealing to aristocracy. He is appealing to the superiority of one expert against the awful authority of a mob. It is quite easy to see why a legend is treated and ought to be treated more respectfully than a book of history. The legend is generally made by the majority of people in the village who are sane. The book is generally written by the one man in the village who is mad. Those who urge against tradition that men in the past were ignorant may go and urge it at the Carlton Club, along with the statement that voters in the slums are ignorant. It will not do for us. If we attach great importance to the opinion of ordinary men in great unanimity when we are dealing with daily matters, there is no reason why we should disregard it when we are dealing with history or fable. Tradition may be defined as an extension of the franchise. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our groom. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our father. I, at any rate, cannot separate the two ideas of democracy and tradition. It seems evident to me that they are the very same idea. We will have the dead at our councils. The ancient Greeks voted by stones. These shall vote by tombstones. It is all quite regular and official, for most tombstones, like most ballot papers, are marked with a cross. Close quote. That's G.K. Chesterton in his masterful work, Orthodoxy. We will side with Chesterton and give the dead, perhaps much more alive than we, a vote. If we are going to wisely restore classical Christian education, we should not trust the current and small oligarchy, like those of us who might be listening now, but that larger class of our wise ancestors. And so I'd like to call upon one of the great dead by the name of Aurelius Augustinus who was born on November 13, 354, and who died on August 28, 430. Yes, Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo. And yes, he was converted after his mother Monica prayed and wept, prayed and wept, so that the Bishop Ambrose of Milan would finally say to her in a fit of mild annoyance, the son of so many tears cannot be lost. Augustine, in his early 30s, became the chief rhetor or rhetorician serving the Roman emperor in Milan. He was clearly gifted by God, as his writings make abundantly clear. His intellect, his rhetoric, his memory, his breadth of knowledge, they are astounding separately and together. The wonder of Augustine, however, is that this, his profound intellect is embraced by a deep, abiding, palpable love for God. His theology, philosophy, history, they are all regularly blended with doxology and praise. Anyone who's read his book, The Confessions, knows this. It's also worth saying this today. Yes, Augustine was an African. He was a North African Berber. Augustine is a universal father of an undivided church, 
And so he's the father of us all, Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants, honor Augustine. R.C. Sproul, the Reformed theologian, the late Reformed theologian, said, if there is any giant that stands out in the history of the church as the man upon whose shoulders the whole history of theology stands, it is a man by the name of Aurelius Augustine, St. Augustine. The 19th century Anglican historian Philip Schaff called him this, a philosophical and theological genius of the first order, towering like a pyramid above his age and looking down commandingly upon succeeding centuries. I've been reading Augustine for over 30 years, and I'm convinced that it is not possible to be well-equipped to renew classical education without him. This is simply because he is the key figure who early on in the fourth century, who synthesizes and consolidates Greek, Roman, and biblical thought into one coherent tradition that today we can call classical Christian education. Augustine wrote a great deal, and he can teach us a great deal. Today, however, I'd like to note three ways in which Augustine can inspire and lead us as we continue to renew classical education. And these three ways consider Augustine as historian, political philosopher, and teacher. First, Augustine as confessor and historian. We should remember the Christian past. Augustine, writing some 1,600 years ago, was remembering the Christian past. First, Augustine remembers his own Christian past, like we all should. He just happens to do this by writing a book that will stand for all time. That book is the Confessions of Augustine. In the Confessions, he is not simply confessing his sins over and over in 13 books or chapters. No, he is confessing the present goodness of God in all aspects of his life and wherever else Augustine has been privileged to see God's goodness in creation. The Latin confitior means not only to confess, but to acknowledge or reveal. What Augustine remembers in his book, we now remember with edification and sometimes even with joy. Wilkin writes in one essay, Memory and the Christian Intellectual Life, he writes this, Language is a vehicle of memory, and few things are more satisfying than to hear old and familiar words spoken or read anew to us. Close quote. How can we not take a moment to enjoy some words from Augustine, from the confessions that have inspired so many countless Christians over the centuries? What do we hear in the confessions? Well, if you've read this book, you probably have your favorite line. But this is probably a universal favorite. I'll read it first to you in Latin. Fecisti nos ad te et inquietum est cor nostrum donec requiescat in te. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I also love this line. Late have I loved thee, beauty so ancient and divine. Late have I loved thee, Augustine, reflecting on the fact that he wasn't converted to the Christian faith until his early 30s, and he considered that late. When do we talk of God like Augustine does? Late have I loved thee. O beauty so ancient and divine, late have I loved thee. Why do we not speak of God this way when we are doing theology? When was the last time you broke out into doxology? and praise when discussing some point of theology or when recounting the life of some great Christian saint. Robert Wilkin is right when he says that we should hear such words and that we need to hear such words that make up our Christian memory. As much as we enjoy hearing these kind of touchstone words, hearing them is not just for personal pleasure. Such words that make up Christian memory give us stability and rootedness. Here's Wilkin again, quote, the Christian intellectual tradition then is inescapably historical. Without memory, our intellectual life is impoverished, barren, ephemeral, subject to the whims of the moment. 
There is no memory that is not rooted in communal experience, a strange fact that we all experience whenever we return to the place where we grew up and talk to family and friends, yet one that is forgotten in abstract thought. Close quote. Do you recite touchstone passages from either scripture or the great Christian writers to your students, to yourself? Do you read great passages to your students with feeling and love? Augustine as historian. Augustine traces his own history famously in the Confessions, but he also surveys the history of his whole people, that people being the Romans. And just as he invites God to be present with him to help him confess in the Confessions, he regularly invites God to do the same in his great sweeping work, The City of God Against the Pagans. At the start of his book, he notes that, quote, the task is long and arduous, but God is our helper. As just one more example, when Augustine finishes the first part of his book, which is about 400 pages long, he writes this, I shall now proceed to fulfill the promise made in the first book, and insofar as I receive assistance from on high, I shall put forward what I think ought to be said about the two cities, which are, as I have pointed out, intermixed with one another in this present world, and I shall treat of their origin development and their destined ends." Close quote. There is a prompting reason why Augustine wishes to write a 1,000-page book, which is the city of God, and that's the sack of the Rome by the Visigoths under King Alaric in 410 AD on August 24th. Rome had not been looted for 800 years. This was, a, this was a first, and it rocked the Roman world. Several influential pagan writers said this defeat was the punishment of the Roman gods, angry because they had been abandoned for the Christian faith. Thus, the full title of Augustine's work is The City of God Against the Pagans. In the Latin, it's Civitas Dei Contra Paganos. Once Augustine gets started in this book, he has quite a story to tell because he must, one, tell the truth about Roman history, and number two, understand and explain Roman history in light of the providential history of God's sovereign workings in the affairs of humanity. Augustine's reading of Scripture provides him with a civil hermeneutic, and it's called the doctrine of the two cities, the city of God and the city of man. He writes this in book 14, quote, We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. Close quote. Augustine begins the city of God with a history of Rome recounted in light of what he has learned as a Christian about God's sovereign providence and glory. He takes over 200 pages in five books or chapters to review Roman history, pointing out that the gods had failed to protect Rome at other times in the past and had demanded obscene rites on the stage even and even in public worship. He pokes fun at the absurd number of Roman gods and the futility and falsity of astrology. He summarizes Rome as ever thirsty for glory and dominion, and he notes with irony that the pagan critics of Christianity during the sacking of Rome fled to the only place they would be safe, the churches of the city. In the second part of the city of God, Augustine continues his examination and critique of Roman polytheism, but then turns his attention to those pagan writers who saw the way, but who could not help us to get there. That's a quote. These are the Platonist or Neoplatonist writers whom Augustine calls near Christians. In another place, Augustine writes, Many wise and beautiful things I have read in Plato and Cicero, but never have I read... Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So, he calls Plato a near Christian, 
and Cicero. But they're not yet Christian, but close enough to deserve his esteem. And he'll even say that it was Plato and people like Plato and Cicero that helped prepare him and lead him to faith in Christ. We see Augustine as perhaps the chief architect, along with Clement of Alexandria and Basil the Great, of a supersessionist or incorporationist paradigm for understanding the relationship between Jerusalem and Athens, or pagan philosophy and biblical teaching. We read this from Book 8 in The City of God. Quote, Sometimes these quotations support the true religion, which our faith has received and now defends, and sometimes they seem to show him in opposition to it. There are thinkers who have rightly recognized Plato's preeminence over the pagan philosophers and have won praise for the penetration and accuracy of their judgment and enjoy a widespread reputation as his followers. It may be that they have some conception of God as to find him the cause of existence, the principle of reason, and the rule of life. Those three things, it will be seen, correspond to the three divisions of philosophy, natural, rational, and moral. If Plato says that the wise man is the man who imitates, knows, and loves this God, and that participation in this God brings man happiness, what need is there to examine the other philosophers? There are none who are nearer to us than the Platonist. And then in another book, he writes, if these men could have had this love over again with us, they would have become Christians with the change of a few words and statements. Close quote. This should prompt us to ask, who are the Platonists in our own age? What is the truth, even if held in the context of some corruption and rebellion, represented by our secular contemporaries, even those who are attacking the Christian faith? Because often, every lie needs some truth to gain plausibility. As classical Christian educators, how do we portray to our students the philosophy and thinking of those outside of the Christian faith? Are we always and only negative in our assessment? Or like Augustine, can we see corrupted truth in the presence of virtually every heresy, the truth needed to make the lies seem plausible? The tools in Augustine's hands are fine tools with which he probes and sifts. They are not blunt instruments, though he may occasionally wield a hammer, but only when a hammer is what is needed. How do we respond to, say, something like transgenderism, the heresy invented just five minutes ago? If you read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, you will not find him pounding away with a hammer in every chapter. Transgenderism has its roots, he believes, in romantic and enlightenment thought. That idea that the world stands opposed to my desires to express my own self-created, self-determined, authentic self. The idea that my own will and reason are able to act autonomously under no authority but my own authority, as I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul, or in Disney's terms, follow your heart. Now, I believe transgenderism is disordered, but that presupposes an order. To be born male and want to be a woman requires one to understand the concept of woman in order to know what it means to become one. To say that woman is socially constructed begs the question as to why there has been a universal construct of woman across all times and peoples. To say that woman is socially constructed also involves a self-refuting proposition because if social construction permeates all thinking and category, then social construction is itself socially constructed and thus not stable or real. So we see at least two truths in transgenderism. It believes at some level in the reality of gender, of woman, or there would be nothing to transition to. 
It also believes in the reality of social expression to create roles and as the basis for community. Yes, we do socially demark men and women. We still have icons on our bathroom doors that, by the way, look like they were drawn by a first grader, depicting women in a dress and men wearing trousers. We want to signal in various social ways what is real about us by biological design. Those social signals do not construct the biological reality, but rather reflect them. Still, if not a pure social construction, these signs are social identifiers that create distinction and meaning. Well, my point here talking about transgenderism is that proceeding as Augustine might, we can point out the truth still present even in heresy. Virtually every heresy in the church was fed by an important truth. Arianism is informed by the truth that Christ was human. Docetism is informed by the truth that Christ was divine. Pelagianism is informed by the truth that our wills are operative and necessary to grow in holiness. Transgenderism is informed, ironically, by the reality of gender. Marxism is informed by the reality that people with power often do seek to keep their power by keeping others down who don't have power. All the way back in the garden, we find that the father of lies mixes a truth with a lie. We read, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, yes, we might even say to Eve, you certainly will die. But also, yes, your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil. Augustine, one of the church's earliest and greatest apologists, helps us to look for the truth mixed in with every lie. The intermingled, interwoven, and mixed two cities. There's another way that Augustine the historian notes some important mixing or intermingling. Not only do non-Christians mix truth with lies, but Christians and non-Christians are themselves mixed and intermingled. The two cities, the city of God and the city of man, co-inhabit the earth. By two cities, Augustine does not mean that the church as an institution is the city of God and the political body of the state or nation is the city of man. He thinks that in the church there will be people who in fact are not Christians and therefore really members of the city of man. He also believes that in the body politic there will be Christians who are in fact members of the city of God. So yes, he is speaking metaphorically as the scriptures do so often. For example, in Hebrews 11 where we read this, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Close quote. The two cities, then, are a biblical trope or metaphor that Augustine finds throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that describe two kinds of people oriented by two kinds of love. Here's Augustine again. Quote, We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city by the love of God carried as far as contempt of self. From book 14. Close quote. Here's another quote. My task is to discuss to the best of my power the rise and development and the destined ends of the two cities, the earthly and the heavenly, the cities which we find, as I have said, interwoven, as it were, in this present transitory world and mingled with one another. Close quote from Book 11. These two cities become 
a master hermeneutic for Augustine that enable him to assess not only his own life or personal history, but also the arc of history itself. Here is what Augustine, here is what the Augustine scholar and classical educator Joseph Clare says about this hermeneutic. Where is the arc going? For Augustine, liberal education requires historical imagination of the purposive arc of human civilization, an arc that can be detected in the intellectual and literary trail that has come down to us through the ages. Where is the arc going? Where are we in the arc? Which is more important, the rise of the Roman Empire or the birth of Christ? This is the question that Scripture poses, and Augustine recognizes that sensitivity to story makes all the difference for the coherence of education that cultures provide their youth for the kinds of citizens educational systems produce. We only learn to speak by the words we receive, and these stories give us our deepest sense of human and political purpose. Who gets to narrate the world? The answer to that question, Augustine says, is the educators. The task of a Christian educator, then, is to bring all of the stories of human civilization into fruitful and critical dialogue with Scripture. Close quote from Joseph Clare. Augustine as Political Philosopher Augustine is a historian, philosopher, theologian, apologist, and teacher, all at the same time. The quotation from Joseph Clare that I just mentioned leads us to consider Augustine as a political philosopher, for among other things, the city of God is a work of Christian political philosophy. But before we consider Augustine's political philosophy, let's just pause and say this. Now is a time when we must study deeply and well the philosophy of the polis. Even five years ago, this was not such a critical need, but now it is. Our society has become so deeply fractured and incoherent that we must become experts on what it means to live peaceably and well together. We can no longer relegate the study of political philosophy until college. We can no longer assume that a college will provide good training in political philosophy. Probably, we need to start such a study in 7th or 8th grade. Most of us had not had adequate training in political philosophy. Most of us have read popular treatments, and have been formed by a smattering of sources, the greatest of which is likely social media and an unsystematic, unsystematic reading on the internet. And this will no longer do. Augustine is the first and greatest Christian heavyweight who helps us to think historically, theologically, philosophically, and systematically about life in the polis. If you wish to be an informed classical educator who addresses political questions, you cannot, in my opinion, do this responsibly without having read and studied the city of God. You may disagree with Augustine at times, but you must know him well. Know him with whom you will disagree. Whom else should you read and know? Well, here's my quick list. I think you should read Plato's Republic, Aristotle's The Politics, Rousseau's The Social Contract, Burke's Reflection on the Revolution in France, Machiavelli's The Prince, Dante's The Divine Comedy, The Federalist Papers, and I'll throw in the essential writings of Russell Kirk. And you should have some of your other favorites to add to that list. But back to Augustine. Augustine argues often that we must order our loves and affections to harmonize with Christ and our love for God and neighbor what he calls our obligation of double love that comes to us in the great commandment from Matthew 22. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. The double love, a love for God, a love for neighbor. We might add a love for our enemies. Those who know Christ love him. And this leads us to a life of prayer, contemplation, and praise. Those who know Christ are also compared to love our neighbors and even our enemies. Ordered love animates those who are in the city of God so that they serve their non-Christian neighbors in the neighborhood, at work, in the army, at city hall, at council meetings, in the shops, with a Christ-inspired, beneficent love. 
Augustine points out that in the Roman Empire, even before it was Christian, that Christians served well in the army and in government and in all aspects of civil society. They did not, however, worship the Roman gods. And they were willing to be outcast and were, and even martyred and were, rather than worship these gods. In fact, it was the lived life of faith, love, and sacrifice that grew the church and converted so many to the Christian faith. The blood of the martyrs did indeed prove to be like seed sown that produced a plentiful harvest of converted souls, so that by 312 the emperor Constantine Constantine is converted to the Christian faith, though not baptized until on his deathbed in 337. Robert Wilkin, again the professor emeritus from UVA, in his essay, No Other Gods, points out that the supreme argument for the truth of Christianity was the lived life of love among Christians and martyrs. Augustine notes that this is true as well. While Christian apologists like Augustine did make use of various philosophical arguments, including arguments made by various pagan philosophers like Plato, he places great emphasis on the reality of God's manifestation in the incarnation of Christ and the presence of his love in his redeemed ones in the church. This is what Origen means when he says that the gospel has a proof which is peculiar to itself. Wilkin writes, quoting Origen, quote, The gospel has a proof which is peculiar to itself and which is more divine than a Greek proof based on dialectical arguments. The more divine demonstration of St. Paul, which he calls the demonstration of the spirit and of power from 1 Corinthians 2. Close quote. We might pause here and ask ourselves, are we too enamored with our various apologetic proofs and arguments, taking every thought captive, that we neglect what it means to love our neighbors and enemies such that they witness not polished polemics, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power? Is there a way that we can take every thought captive without treating our opponents as if we were trying to make them captives? If we follow Augustine, we will find him speaking a timely and seasoned word, employing a rhetoric of love which knows his audience and which can be firm without being dismissive, pointed while being respectful. Miracles. Many of us will be surprised to read in the final section of The City of God, that's book 22, that Augustine reports the ongoing existence of miracles that substantiates the Christian faith and miracles surrounding relics. Most Protestants are skeptical of prayers to the saints and miracles produced by relics. Augustine is not, and he lists several reports of miraculous conversions across the social spectrum from young to old and from various stations of life. He reports, his reports read very much like Jonathan Edwards' narrative of surprising conversions that were collected by Edwards during the First Great Awakening in the 1740s in New England. The relics of St. Stephen, that's the deacon in Acts 7, were brought to Carthage in Augustine's time, and a steady stream of miracles apparently resulted from those who would visit the relics and pray. Of course, there's a biblical precedent for these kinds of miracles. In Acts 5, even the shadow of Peter brought healing. And in Acts 19, we read this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Close quote. While the history of the church indicates that miracles cannot be called upon by demand, we often do see miracles in the midst of Christian suffering and certainly when God intervenes in mighty acts of redemption, such as the Exodus and the life of Christ, the establishment of the church after Pentecost, etc. Are we open to God acting in such mighty ways in our own time? Remembering the future... 
and seeking provisional peace. Augustine is the classical representative of the most enduring form of millennialism. His view of the reign of Christ is straightforward and has been the standard eschatology of the church up until the 1700s. His view is this, when Christ ascended into heaven, he took up his throne at the right hand of the Father, and he is now ruling supreme, subduing his enemies before his feet. Already and now, but will completely subdue or complete this subduing yet in the future at his second coming. Thus, theologians have often referred to the already, not yet characteristic of Christ's reign. It is a millennial view insofar as it, it interprets the 1,000-year reign of Christ in the book of Revelation chapter 20 as a symbolic number of perfection and a reign that is present now and will be completed and fulfilled when Christ returns. Thus, already, not yet. Some have called this realized millennialism because the 1,000-year reign of Christ is being realized presently, right now, and throughout history since the ascension of Christ. Some have called this amillennialism to distinguish it from two recent eschatological interpretations, premillennialism, that holds that Christ will return first, that is, before the millennium, and then establish a thousand-year reign, and two, postmillennialism, that holds that the church will grow such that it brings about the millennium and in an age of near-complete global domination of the church, post, therefore, after which Christ will return. I note that both premillennialism and postmillennialism are more recent eschatologies in church history, really taking hold in the 1800s. They are not Augustinian, and I think it's safe to say they're not classical. So what do we teach our students about eschatology? Our eschatology does have some implications, sometimes direct implications, for our politics. How should we think and behave in the polis? Our eschatology will guide this. Various forms of premillennialism will tend to de-emphasize political activity since adherents, adherents believe that socially and politically these things are only going to get worse and worse leading up to the rise of an antichrist and a great tribulation and then the rapture of the church. If it's all, as it were, going to burn, why get politically active or why place any hope in political activity or solutions? On the other hand, various forms of post-millennialism lead adherents to optimism, confidence, and even cockiness. Christ's kingdom, according to this view of eschatology, will increasingly grow until the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters of the sea. If it's dark now, it's the dark before a dawning light. Post-millennialists often become feisty and pugnacious, ready for the fight that they are confident we will win. Augustine, in my view, was neither of these. Augustine, though he could appear at times pessimistic, like the premillennialist, and optimistic, like the postmillennialist, was neither of these. He was not confident in pagan society to bring about true justice or true peace. In this sense, he was pessimistic. But he was confident that those in the city of God could leverage even the relative peace that existed in civil society and grow it and, it and use it to lead others into the city of God where they could taste and know the heavenly peace that Christ brings, and which is his own peace, and that this heavenly peace would be infused wherever it was present to change society, towns, and cities wherever it was found. Augustine believed that the wheat and the tares would grow up together, intermingled, to be finally separated only when Christ returns in judgment. Until that time, though the kingdom of God was spread like leaven through the dough, the kingdom or city would remain intermingled or interwoven with the city of man, with those outside of the church. This classical eschatology leaves room for pessimism and optimism that acknowledges the reality of living as pilgrims on this earth.
like strangers in a strange land, with our citizenship ultimately in heaven. It also acknowledges the providence of God over the affairs of men and earth that may lead, given God's inscrutable purposes, that may lead Christians into times of suffering and martyrdom that will bring God glory, grow the church, and bless civil society. As such, Augustine seeks a relative harmony and earthly peace that's in service of the city of God. Here's a quote from Augustine. The earthly city, which is, does not live by faith, seeks an earthly peace, and the end it proposes in the well-ordered concord of civic obedience and rule is the combination of men's will to attain the things which are helpful to this life. The heavenly city, or rather the part of it which sojourns on earth and lives by faith, makes use of this peace only because it must, until this mortal condition which necessitates it shall pass away. Consequently, so long as it lives like a captive and a stranger in the earthly city, though it has already received the promise of redemption and the gift of the Spirit as the earnest of it, it makes no scruple to obey the laws of the earthly city, whereby the things necessary for the maintenance of this mortal life are administered. And thus, as this life is common in both cities, so there is a harmony between them in regard to what belongs to it. But as the earthly city has had some philosophers whose doctrines is condemned by the divine teaching, and who, being deceived either by their own conjectures or by demons, suppose that many gods must be invited to take an interest in human affairs and assign to each a separate function and a separate department, to one the body, to another the soul, and in the body itself, to one the head, to another the neck, and each of the other members to one of the gods, and in like manner in the soul, to one god the natural capacity was assigned, to another education, to another anger, to another lust. And so the various affairs of life were assigned, cattle to one, that is to one god, corn to another, wine to another, oil to another, woods to another, money to another, navigation to another, wars and victories to another, marriages to another, births and fecundity to another, and other things to other gods. And as the celestial city, on the other hand, knew that one God only was to be worshipped, and that to him alone was due that service which the Greeks call Latreia, and which can be given only to a God, it has come to pass that the two cities could not have common laws of religion, and that the heavenly city has been compelled in this matter to dissent, and to become obnoxious to those who think differently and to stand the brunt of their anger and hatred and persecutions, except insofar as the minds of their enemies have been alarmed by the multitude of the Christians and quelled by the manifest protection of God accorded to them. This heavenly city then, while it sojourns on earth, calls citizens out of all nations and gathers together a society of pilgrims of all languages, not scrupling about diversities in the manners, laws, and institutions whereby earthly peace is secured and maintained, but recognizing that, however various these are, they all tend to one and the same end of earthly peace. It, therefore, is so far from rescinding and abolishing these diversities that it even preserves and adopts them, so long only as no hindrance to the worship of the one supreme and true God is thus introduced. Even the heavenly city, therefore, while in its state of pilgrimage, avails itself of the peace of earth, and, so far as it can without injuring faith and godliness, desires and maintains a common agreement among men regarding the acquisition of the necessities of life and makes this earthly peace bear upon the peace of heaven. For this alone can be truly called and esteemed the peace of the reasonable creatures consisting as it does in the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God.
When we shall have reached that peace, this mortal life shall give place to one that is eternal, and our body shall be no more this animal body which by its corruption weighs down the soul, but a spiritual body feeling no want, and in all its members subjected to the will. In its pilgrim state, the heavenly city possesses this peace by faith, and by this faith it lives righteously when it refers to the attainment of that peace every good action towards God and man. For the life of the city is a social life. Well, it's a complex passage that indicates the way that the city of God is intermingled with the city of man and the ways in which Christians living among non-Christians will seek a relative earthly peace that would even serve the peace of the heavenly city. What do we teach our children about our engagement with civic life. Do we pray with them for the peace of the city? Do we note the existence of demons and demonic forces that are at work in society? Do we even lay out the options for how Christians have thought about engagement with civic life? How do we address questions that are before us now that cannot be ignored? Questions like, what is man? What is a woman? What is a family? What is sex for? What is oppression? What is justice? Remembering Augustine will supply us with a great deal of prudence that comes from seeing that what comes around has been around and that we can wisely use prudence from the past in our present moment. Dual citizenship. Before we move on to consider Augustine as a teacher, I would like to note two more important contributions that he makes to political philosophy. He believes that we, we hold a dual, a dual citizenship. Have you ever met someone who has two passports, has two citizenships? I know of someone who is an American citizen and has residency status in Italy and in Israel and he's considering getting Italian citizenship. He is Matt Dahl, and he leads the Gordon and Orvieto program in Italy. His two sons were educated in Italian schools, but now they're finishing high school in Jerusalem. Sound complicated? Augustine is not a purist when life is complex. He does not reduce the complexity of life to simple maxims and categories. On the other hand, He's not lost in the forest, unable to see the forest for all the trees. He toggles back and forth between the one and the many, seeing unity in diversity. Americans right now seem unable to think with this kind of deafness, preferring simple slogans that retard thought. Just as anarchy leads eventually to a dictator or a despot, so Anarchy of thought leads many, out of sheer mental exhaustion, to, to listen to a clear, strong voice that simplifies matters. And perhaps we do need a voice crying in the wilderness, but it ought not to be a simple voice. Augustine writes a thousand pages, so you might not think that he writes simply, and we might not want to start our eighth graders with reading the City of God, we might ourselves even start with an excellent summary like Joseph Clare's book, which I've quoted already. Reading Augustine is the name of that book, and it's only 120 pages long. Or perhaps Peter Brown's biography of Augustine. Augustine notes that we have dual citizenship. This means that we are citizens of the heavenly city, but we're also civic participants in our own polis and nation. Clare writes this, for Augustine, there are ultimately only two cities and two kinds of citizens. But in a second sense, we are always already dual citizens, citizens of a temporal political community and of an ultimate eschatological reality in which we mysteriously already participate by anticipation. Claire goes on to note that because our primary allegiance is always to the heavenly city, that our participation in civil affairs will be limited. Quote, the universal conception of humanity and the fellow feeling and identification with all other human beings that it denotes flowers 
in the new form of limited politics found in the Christian community. The church, in Augustine's eyes, should strive to become the site of achievement for true diversity, meted out through love of both neighbor and enemy, as a signal to the political community in which it finds itself of the heavenly city's reality. Close quote. This kind of human participation does not mean that we find politics a neutral place. To be sure, we live in a cyculum, meaning an age in Latin, and this cyculum, this secular age, means the age of Christ's reign in the midst of the intermingling of the city of God and the city of man. To be intermingled does not mean, however, that Christians submit to some kind of neutral space in which we must lay down our commitments to Christ as Lord over all. Here is Robert Wilkin again on the subject from his essay, No Other Gods. Quote, it has sometimes been argued that in the city of God, Augustine's apology contra paganos, that Augustine made place for a neutral secular space that could accommodate paganism and promote a coherence of wills about things relevant to this mortal life. Here there could be a joining of hands of the city of God and the earthly city for the cultivation of arts, the arts of civilization. But for Augustine, a neutral secular space could only be a society without God, subject to the libido dominandi, or the lust for power. He was convinced that even in this fallen world, there could be no genuine peace or justice where God is not honored. When a man does not serve God, what amount of justice are we to suppose exists in his being? Where a people has no regard for God, there can be no social bond, no common life, no virtue. Although the virtues are reckoned by some people to be genuine and honorable when they are related only to themselves and are sought for no other end, even then they are puffed up and proud, and so are to be accounted vices rather than virtues. He writes as well, Wilkin does, quote, The secular is not a non-religious space of neutrality, but rather a time of the entanglement of the two cities on their way toward their eternal destinations in heaven or hell. It is a time where the two kinds of citizens are mixed together, both in the church and in the nation. It is a time we have been allotted to bear this interwovenness in society and within ourselves and to reorder our loves, making us fit to become heavenly citizens. Each individual is torn between the two cities and daily must renew his or her loyalty. This provides a chastened, self-critical edge to Augustine's view of education and citizenship. In his reading of pagan literature, there are bright moments of self-transcendence for the common good to be found and imitated even in pagan history. There is also the possibility that we can be that we can be deluded, we can delude ourselves and become even more prideful through the reading of Scripture, as Augustine says, is the case with the Pelagian doctrine of Christian perfectionism. For Augustine, all of these distinctions, the enemy and friend, the prideful and humble, the lovers of God and the lovers of self, the two kinds of citizens and the two cities and our judgments about them are always provisional from the human point of view. They are provisional because the inhabitants of the two cities the ultimately prideful and humble, are intermingled in this present age. They are provisional because we are always already dual citizens, our ultimate citizenship and our provisional citizenship, as in the citizenship of the USA or some other political body. Finally, let's consider Augustine as teacher. As classical educators, we want to consider Augustine as historian, as political philosopher, and as teacher. And he was a great teacher. And he wrote about teaching. 
By now, it should be clear that Augustine is a good teacher. He does his research. He thinks deeply. He analyzes. He synthesizes. He thinks analogically. He allows the scriptures to flow through everything he writes and says. He frequently breaks into doxology and praise. In the City of God, as in the Confessions, he models good teaching. We as educators should emulate him. Augustine also writes directly about teaching, chiefly in his book, De Doctrina Christiana, sometimes translated as On Christian Teaching or On Christian Doctrine. There are dozens of insights about teaching in this rich little book, which should be studied by every classical educator. Here are just a few. Quoting from Augustine. But no one disputes that it is much more pleasant to learn lessons presented through imagery and much more rewarding to discover meetings that are one only with difficulty. Those who fail to discover what they are looking for suffer from hunger, whereas those who do not look because they already have it in front of them often die of boredom. In both situations, the danger is lethargy. Another quote. Regarding tortuous, tortuous rules about various matters, it is as if someone who wanted to give rules about walking were to tell you that your back foot should not be raised until you have put down your front foot and then describe in minute detail how you should move the joints of your limbs and knees. You would be right. Walking in any other way is impossible. But people find it easier to walk by actually doing these things than by paying attention to them as they do them, or by assimilating rules when they hear them. Another quotation. In all these matters, it is often true that the pleasure derived from the open display of truth is greater than the assistance gained from discussing or examining them though indeed these things can sharpen the intellect, which is a good thing provided that they do not also make people more mischievous or conceited, or in other words, more inclined to deceive others by plausible talk and questioning, or to think that by learning these things they have done something marvelous, which entitles them to consider themselves superior to ordinary, unsophisticated people. The open display of truth is greater than the assistance gained from discussing or examining it. And here's yet another quotation from Augustine. Let us adapt ourselves to our students with the love which is at once the love of a brother, of a father, and of a mother. When once we are linked to them in heart, the old familiar things will seem new to us. So great is the influence of a sympathetic mind that when our students are affected by us as we speak and we by them as they learn, we dwell in each other, and thus both they, as it were, speak within us what they hear, while we, after a fashion, learn in them what we teach. This is from his book on the catechism, on the, on the education of catechumens. And one more from the same book. The more we love those to whom we speak, the more we want them to like what we speak, and so the more careful we are in speaking to them what they need. And we're just getting started with Augustine on teaching. I recommend um, The Instruction of Catechumens, a short book uh, on Christian teaching by Augustine. Note the subtlety of Augustine's thinking here about pedagogy, just as we've seen it about politics. Teaching and learning is an art. Teaching and learning is complex. So is politics. Augustine is a blended thinker who tracks with the one and the many, substance and accidents, sameness and difference. He is, after all, Trinitarian, and he wrote a book about the Trinity, and has learned that God himself is one and many and mysterious. His creation is the same, and so are we ourselves, being amphibians by nature, both immaterial and material.
blended. How do all these things cohere? The affairs of men in society are also mysterious and complex. The affairs of students and teachers are the same. But note also his emphasis again on love in the last passage. The pedagogy of Gustin is a pedagogy of love, one could argue. Rightly ordered love inspired by Christ's love for us, compelling us to love God in our teaching and love the students he has given us in a mutual indwelling of truth, which is Christ himself. So let me conclude. Are you an Augustinian? Let me answer for you. Yes. How consciously you are is another matter. I believe the renewal of classical Christian education is already largely Augustinian, but not sufficiently so, not consciously enough. Augustine offers us a blended wine, like the great wines of Italy that might be 80% Cabernet and 20% Syrah, aged in oaken barrels, two wines to match the two cities. Others offer us a hard, strong Cabernet that wakes one up with a powerful front end and serves as a tonic and even a shock to the senses, but which does not reflect the subtle, mingled reality, which is the life of a pilgrim. Let the renewal of classical education continue as a pilgrimage while we love our Lord, our neighbors, and our enemies. Thanks for watching or listening. Mm -hmm.